So just before I graduate, wishful thinking, I tried to get a job in London. I didn't even own a suit. You go to this British banker, they are very formally dressed. So I went to Oxfam, which is a charity organization. I went to buy a suit, which was two size, bigger than my size because that wasn't my size. I'm already on the smaller side in Asia. So when I went to UK, I'm like size zero. So with this chicken suit, you know, a suit so big that can hide a chicken, I went for an interview in London. Within 20 minutes, they threw me out. I went for four different companies, four different banks, and none of them lasted for more than an hour. I ran out of money, so I had to come back. And yeah, that was 1997. The Asian financial crisis hit the Indonesia rupiah, right? From 2,500 weakened to 10,000. So it's very difficult to imagine. And even Sing dollar weakened from one US dollars to 1.4 Sing, depreciated to 1.8. So about 20, 25% depreciation. Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 112, part one of the So This My Why podcast. I'm your host and producer, Ling Ya, and today's guest is Eric Sim. Now, Eric is the former managing director of UBS, with over 2.9 million followers on LinkedIn. He's also published a book, is an adjunct professor and speaker, and made it to the LinkedIn Top Voices for Singapore and also the LinkedIn Spotlight for China. Now, as with all steamy interviews, we dive deep to uncover who Eric is, from how he was a shy boy with no social skills and who felt his mathematics, his English literature and history while helping his dad to run his prawn noodle shop, to studying engineering at US, then working in an FX sales role where he realized he was terrible at his job. Thankfully, he pivoted out and his career took an upward trajectory. So if you want to know what it takes to be a managing director of UBS, why Eric left, why he believes in personal branding, building second career, and honestly, how he even gained 2.9 million followers on LinkedIn, then this is the episode for you. And if you haven't done so already, please do consider subscribing to this Steamy newsletter, where I share all the tools, frameworks, and stories from successful people on how they've built their lives, personal branding, and also how we can prepare ourselves for the future of work. Now, are you ready? Let's go. Welcome to the So This Is My Why podcast, where we talk to people about their whys and how they turn them into realities to inspire you to live your best life. And here's your host, Ling Ya. I was quiet, timid, underweight in school. I was forced to drink this oat milk. There's the auntie who will chase after me. To so that, Yeah, to, to help us grow. Because I think during the 1960s, 1970s, Singapore was poor. A lot of kids were undernourished. And I have to also help my father at the hawker store. My father sold prawn noodles for 30 over years. I helped him since primary school until I was a second year in the university. And that's where I learned some of the skills that I'm still using today, learning from my father and also interacting with the customers, interacting with people around me. You know, they could be selling pork. My father sold prawn noodles. Other people were selling grocery. And I remember the next door was a fishball noodle shop. I noticed in my research that your father actually started his prawn noodle shop 10 years before you were born. And you said that he'll be selling 100 balls daily. 
but you also have two younger sisters. So was it a family affair? Was it all of you chipping in? Or was it just you because you're the Yeah, son? it was just me. I was the only boy and I feel obligated because nobody wants to go, including me. I also didn't want to go. But if none of us go, the store cannot service the customer fast enough. Weekday is okay. So on Sunday especially, that market is super crowded. And my father only has one helper. So I have to help out. And when my father's helper falls sick, I have to skip school and go down to the hawker store as well. Mm. I mean, it's not an easy life. You would get up at seven, be there by half past seven. You still have work. You said you would smell fish all the time. I noticed you once said at the time you didn't think much of your father. So is it right to say that you felt resentful that you had to be in this position? Resentful, just something, it's just hard work. So when you're young, this is physical work, right? And have to get up early. That means I got not much of a nightlife. Can you imagine you're a teenager, Saturday night, you cannot go out too late. Christmas Eve, New Year's Eve, I cannot go out too late because the next day is public holiday and I have to go and help. I remember there was once I stayed maybe until 5 a.m. with my friends. And by 7, I have to be down. 10 a.m. at the store, I was like dozing off. It was very, very tiring. I can imagine. And what about, I suppose, the rest of your family? Because I noticed that even when you were very young, you were very into self-improvement. You were always taking classes that were in addition to whatever you were doing. Where did that come from? Was education something that you're parents really instilled in you because your mom was illiterate yeah both my parents didn't know much about school my father went to school maybe primary one primary two my mother can't even read and write except her own name so there was once my mother was trying to ask me to eat more vegetables eat potato and she said that hey you know the foreign kids they were carving animals out of potato to entice me to eat. And next day when I went onto the school bus, I told the boy next door, I said, hey, do you know that the foreign kids, the Western kids, they are carving animals out of potato? He laughed. He said that that's not possible. And not only that, he told the entire bus of school children, of course, the entire bus laughed at me. So that means that what was told to me by the most trusted person in my life is not true. So there's nobody I can trust. That means whatever knowledge that I have, I need to think very carefully. So I think that made me lose my confidence. Then I developed inferiority complex. So I think the only way to overcome that inferiority complex is to get more knowledge. So I have a folder, a very thick folder full of certificate. (laughs) I'll learn anything. I'll learn like this racing car type of driving. I'll do sailing. I even went to learn singing so I can sing better at the karaoke. (laughs) And of course, I learned the technical stuff like C, C++, photography. So many, many courses. And those courses were not very relevant to my work because I was an engineer by training, then was in banking. But now they all start coming back because I need photo editing skills to post on LinkedIn. And the design course that I've taken over the years is now coming into play and designing my book as well. Racing, selling, designing books, that all sounds really fun. But why on earth did you end up choosing engineering after doing so many different things? It doesn't exactly strike you as anyone as glamorous or fun. 
Yeah, all this was over time. All this sailing design, I think it was more like after my engineering degree. So from primary school until university, I was just following the majority of the people. So my senior go to this particular school, this secondary school, I'll just go. Then the next batch of senior will go to a, a junior college. I'll just follow. Half of them did engineering. So I went. Plus, I failed my English in school. So I need to choose a major that doesn't require a good command of language. How did you decide after doing the entire Bachelor of Engineering that you wanted to finance? Okay, at that point, right, I said that enough of following people. If I follow people, then I will have a very average life, a very boring life. I said life cannot be like that. So from then on, I went on the other extreme. People will use Canon camera, I will use Nikon. People use PC, I'll use Mac. So I start using Mac in 2001. I'm an early adopter. Of course, all my engineering classmates went into engineering or engineering related. So I say, let me do something different. Let me go to banking and do some marketing or sales because that is where I was area of communication and social skills. You ended up joining DVS Bank and you joined even though you missed their campus recruitment events. And you sent an unsolicited application letter. What's the story behind that? Yeah. So I was in school and I bumped into a classmate of mine. His name is Po Leong. And told me, hey, Eric, there was a DBS, a campus recruitment. Do you go? I said, I didn't know about it. Because we were in engineering. How would I know? But he is very savvy because he wanted to go into banking. And then he went out to find out all this information. He said, oh, don't worry. HRC can write in unsolicited. So I took his advice and I wrote in to say that I graduated from engineering degree. I would like a job in DBS Bank, maybe in the area of marketing or, or sales. And they called me up for interview. I went for one round with two hiring manager. And next thing I know, I went to HR for interview and I got a job. It was a big milestone because DBS Bank was a very well-known bank in Singapore. And my parents were very proud because they, they know this back. Although I must say that the pay is much lower than engineering. So I still remember very clearly I was paid 1,800 Singapore dollars. If I have gone for engineering job, I may have gotten like 2005 if I'm lucky, right? Because with a second upper honors, I may have gotten like 2007. That means I could have gotten 50% more than 1,008. But then you kind of make up with the bonus, right? Which is like 30,000, I believe, which your colleagues then used to splurge on fancy holidays. Yeah, the bonus was not bad. But at that time, I didn't know about the bonus. All I wanted to do is to do something different than what I had done before. That's the interesting thing. You wanted to do something that was different against the status quo. You managed to impress the interviewers. You had that great story about you working as a bartender. And then it turns yeah. out that big milestone as an FX corporate sailor was also the sailor was also the biggest mistake in a way. So did you feel as though at the time, oh, I shouldn't be going against the grain? This was a big mistake. I don't know why I actually want that. That the mistake was to not follow what everyone else was doing because the first time you decided not to do that, it sounds like it turned out that it was for a role that didn't suit you. Yeah. So. When I went to DBS Bank, then I realized that this is not my world because everybody is savvy, right? Because they come from business school, they know what banking is, they know what foreign exchange is. I've got no idea about foreign exchange. I'm supposed to sell that. 
I don't even know how to book a restaurant. So when my boss asked me to book a restaurant for client meeting, I call up the restaurant. I say that, hey, if we are late, can you take care of my customer first? Then my colleagues all laugh at me because the restaurant wouldn't care or wouldn't know who is customer and who is the host, right? But then at that time, I was so ignorant. I've never really eaten at the restaurant. I was always eating in the hawker center. So I found that I needed to beef up my banking and finance knowledge and also have to develop some social skills and people skills. So I decided to quit after two and a half years. So did you think that Lancaster was your way of restarting your entire journey? Because you end up going to study finance, right? Yeah. So I say I need to do finance because I already did the engineering part. I was very interested in the quantitative finance part because there is a part of finance that use calculus, stochastic calculus, a lot of statistic and regression. I said that would be something that I'm interested in. And also because if I can show my skills in that area, I can use less of my social skills, right? That means I will not be judged just purely based on the way I talk. So I went to apply for scholarship. It's from British Council. I think for Chevron scholarship or Raffles scholarship is given out by the UK government. So I applied for that. I applied for a few schools. Unfortunately, I was not offered a scholarship. So now I have to decide, do I want to spend 20,000 sing? At that time was just 20,000 sing, but that's all my entire savings. Now without the scholarship, should I still go? Because initially my plan is without scholarship, forget it. Then after about two weeks of thinking, if I don't go, I need to wait for one more year. I may not get the scholarship. So the problem is going to be the same the following year. And I will still be having this miserable life because I didn't do well and my bosses didn't think too highly of me. So I said, okay, I need to prepare like 11 to 12 months worth of living allowance plus the school fees. I had one month short. I still went hoping that maybe I'll eat less or I try to find a job <laughs> over there. That's when I went and it was a good decision despite against my mother's wish. For my mother, DBS Bank is already a good bank, you know, $1,000, dollars is good money. Why throw that away? Because when you go overseas for study, one year, you got no more income and there's no guarantee you get a better job. And then you came back from UK and then it turns out that it was really bad timing. It was when the 1997 Asian financial crisis struck and you were jobless for six months. What was that yeah. period like? So just before I graduate, wishful thinking, I tried to get a job in London. I didn't even own a suit. You go to this British banker, they are very formally dressed. So I went to Oxfam, which is a charity organization. I went to buy a suit, which was two size bigger than my size because there wasn't my size. I'm already on the smaller side in Asia. So when I went to UK, I'm like size zero. So with this chicken suit, you know, a suit so big that can hide a chicken, I went for an interview in London. Within 20 minutes, they threw me out. I went for four different companies, four different banks, and none of them lasted for more than an, an hour. I ran out of money, so I have to come back. And yeah, that was 1997. The Asian financial crisis hit the Indonesia rupiah, right? From 2,500 weakened to 10,000. So it's very difficult to imagine. And even Sing dollar weakened from 1 US dollars to 1.4 Sing depreciated to 1.8. So about 20, 25% depreciation. 
So very fortunately, I went in 1996. Had I waited a year, had I thought maybe let me save a bit more money, then I wouldn't have gone because whatever savings I had, if I converted to pounds, it may not be enough. And probably, you know, you don't have the confidence that you can find a job after you come back because you never know this Asian financial crisis, how long it's going to last. So you came back, Asian financial crisis happened. It's a good thing you decided not to stick around for one more year to have a little bit of extra cash. And then you end up going into risk management. I mean, like you said before at that time that you actually had two job offers. He accepted the smaller job at Standard Chartered because of the boss, Prasanna Thumbri. And you use like amazing words to describe Prasanna. He believed in you and therefore you decided to accept this smaller job and he helped to build the strong foundation for your career. Who is yeah. Prasanna and how did he influence you? Yeah, so I'll just give you a bit of the backstory. I couldn't find a job and my objective of going for this master's is to work in London and work in front office because I was from front office. There was no front office job. There was no structuring. I wanted to do derivative structuring. And since I cannot find that, I decided to change tag. I said, okay, let me look for a middle office job, a risk management job. Then I applied a few. I got a French bank, BNP, and I got Standard Chartered Bank. Both are quite similar role, but BNP at that time was much more international. And I think I went for the interview with the HR. I've forgotten whether I met the boss or not. Even if I have, the means I didn't have deep impression of him. With Stan Chart, I met my boss, Prasanna Tom Bremi. He thinks that I'm a good fit and he's really giving me the, the vibes that he's going to train me up, develop me. He offered me decent pay rise compared to my DBS bank job. So I went and true enough, he decided to send me to London shortly after I joined. You know, a few months into my job, they say, okay, Eric, you go to London for six months. So I was able to enjoy London because my dream was to work in London, right? So I realized my dream of working in London and I got that confidence back because he believed in me. I think that's very important for the early careers, listener out there. Your boss, right, can make a huge impact on you. Companies like big brand name, yeah, you put it on your CV, you carry a business card, it's good. But how much leeway and how many mistakes you can make and how willing are you to try new things in your job depends on your boss. So he gave me that. You know, I failed my English, but I still wrote article. I wrote a calculation of bank capital and submitted to Derivative Weekly. I said, hey, I'm going to send this article. Can I add your name? He said, yeah, okay. That means he supported me. And it was published. First time ever I was carrying that magazine, the Derivative Weekly magazine. Say, my name on it. They decided to publish. I was a nobody. And not only that, one week later, somebody more senior, like the super big boss, came to me. He was the Southeast Asia head. He came to the middle office section and he said, who is Eric Sim? You know, just go around. Then I say, I'm Eric Sim. So something is wrong. Maybe I wrote the article without telling corporate communication, without telling HR, only my boss knew. So he said, follow me. I said, oh, follow him. So I, I followed him, then went to the global head, the market's global head. So him and his one down, all the department's head were there each carrying a photocopy of my article about bank capital. So I said, oh no, I'm going to be fired for not informing corporate communication. And the big boss, his name is Mike Risk, asked me, did you write this article? I said, yes. Then another senior management said, you wrote it personally? I said, yes, I wrote it personally. Then HR was there. So the big boss said, okay, 
give Eric a, a sport award, which is like maybe 3,000 Singapore dollars. Because at that time, right, nobody within the risk department or even within the front office is knowledgeable enough to write about bank capital because it's a very complex calculation. And it's, it's a complex matter. There are many things to consider when you talk about bank capital. So without my boss persona, I wouldn't have written that article because imagine your boss is always picking up your mistake. You wouldn't dare to do that. And if I cannot try new things, how can I grow? I suppose that writing an article would constitute one of the risks that you mentioned before that you started to take because you had a boss who believed in you then. Yes. Yeah. And also then I went on to Hong Kong. He also sent me to Hong Kong. That means he believes that I can do well without supervision, right? He will send me to London and Hong Kong. That means he was not there to supervise me. And he thinks that I can still deliver my job. At what point did you decide it was time to move on? Because to get to City, you said that you were looking and everyone only wanted to hire you as a risk manager. And you entered City because of an ex-DBS colleague, Terence. Yeah, it happens quite coincidentally. My boss, a resigned persona, decided to leave. Then my DBS bank ex-colleague, he went to City and then he called me to say that his boss is looking for somebody to do risk advisory, to advise customers. So I went for, for the interviews. That time I didn't know that my boss was has already resigned. So I went for interviews and seems like I did okay because I have both risk management as well as the sales experience from DBS Bank. So the city boss feel that I'm okay, uh, quite a good fit. After three rounds of interview, I got the job. So now is whether to resign or not. When I knew Prasanna resign, then it's very easy for me. <laughs> yeah, he left Then there's no reason to stay. I got along so well with the front office people. They said, if you want a front office job, just tell us, you know, we can transfer you. I said, it's okay because I already sign with City. Just let me go, you know. So they match everything. They match the pay increment, the title. But I thought I shouldn't let my friend down, Terence, because he already introduced me and then I, I should go. So if not for Terence, you would have stayed on? If not for Terence, then yeah, I, I guess I wouldn't have a choice but to stay on in a job without a good boss. Standard Chartered and City, were they very different culturally as working inside? Difficult to, for me to compare because I was in a different department, right? I was in risk mm-hmm. management and I went to front office. I guess City is really a global bank. And although I didn't have Prasanna down there, I have Terence, a buddy to take care of me. Plus, I make very good friends and they really moved me around. I spent eight years with City. After four years, I saw that China was liberalizing its financial sector. So in 2005, I asked the big boss, I first asked the China boss, can I come and work for you? He said, okay. Then, this is Paulus, right? Yeah, Paulus said, okay. And then I've got another boss, Rodrigo. He was the Asia sales head. I got his blessing. So I went within a couple of months, it was settled. And it was really good benefit. They give me a container. I can ship my entire house if I want to. Allowance, you know, business class. And then in Shanghai, I got a four-bedroom apartment and only me and my wife. So you can only use one bedroom. <laughs> yeah. What was it like being in Shanghai at that time? And then you witnessed China's financial sector being liberalized oh, and pegging. 
it was a great, great time. Yeah. In July of 2005, one of my colleagues, he sent me a message to say, hey, RMB, I'm packed against the dollar. I thought he was joking because the currency was packed for like 10 over years. Then by 6 p.m., the news were up because he was locked with other bankers in the room. So they were told around five something, but they were locked in the room. They got no access to mobile phone. But I think he managed to sneak in and he sent me a message. It was a good time to be there, to witness that. And also, I was able to contribute a lot because a lot, they are learning and I was able to bring my technical expertise on products to China to train the China team. And also, it was a very good chance for me to practice my Mandarin and also understand Chinese business culture. I was dealing with some state-owned enterprises. I was also dealing with much bigger transaction and closer to the customer as well. What is the Chinese business culture? What are some of the things that we should be doing, but we tend to overlook or not be aware of? In China, one of my customers told me in Chinese, So if you want to do the transaction, you need to work on the person. That's quite common throughout Asia, though. I had one VC who said that he worked in Europe, and that was very different from Asia, where you have to be friends for three years, play golf, and then they'll talk business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you need to do a lot of that. There was some drinking, a lot of entertainment. I have spent 10 hours with a client. (laughs) I don't even spend 10 hours with anybody else. So that was eye-opener, make me really learn. And also, maybe as a Singaporean, sometimes we tend to follow structure. There is a step-by-step, there's a process. In China, things are more fluid. You need to be flexible, adaptable before you can do, do business. Yeah. What were some of your most memorable moments with clients that you did, which really left an impact on the client? They became your friends and later on worked together. Yeah. One of my client during a meeting was smoking and then he threw a cigarette at me across the table. I took the cigarette. In China, it's okay not to smoke. You can take the cigarette and don't smoke, but drink, you have to drink. So after the meeting, I pulled the working level. I say that your leader, they don't use the boss in China. I say your leader is not so polite throwing the cigarette at me. Then he said, no, no, no. You misunderstand. He treats you like a friend. That's why he throw the cigarette at you across the table to offer you. If he still use both hands to offer you the cigarette, that means you're still at professional level and you're not going to do the business. True enough, a few weeks later, I closed a big transaction with the customer because we have developed to a friend's level and that's what you need to do. So it can be some misunderstanding. You think people are rude to you. But not in that case. So that's something that I learned and I really appreciate both the boss and the working level. I mean, they treat me with sincerity. And until today, we are in touch. I'm going to Shanghai soon, so I'm going to meet up with them. How do you end up making friends with these people? Because I do remember at the very start, you said you were socially awkward, but you have to be friends. You have to be able to know all these different people and make them feel at ease. I offered some training. I said that before you buy the product from us, maybe you should learn what this product is. So let me give you a training. And one of the night, I couldn't join the networking events. Other bankers gone. I didn't go. So they asked some of my colleagues, how come Eric is not here? 
then my, my colleague said that Eric is at home practicing his Mandarin speech and the training for the next day. So they thought that I was professional as well. And basically, I'm sincere. I told them the risk uh, of the product and I explained it clearly to them. I didn't say that this is the best product for you. I tell them the upside and the downside. Is this around the point where you started learning that I have to really know the restaurants well? This is something you wrote about a lot in your book. Going to yeah. the same restaurant all the time, the chef yeah. and your friends. Knowing the restaurant well is important. It's something very small, but everybody can pick it up. So usually when I go to a new city, if I live in that city, or if I know that I'm going to travel there very often, I try to get one, two or three restaurants. I'll frequent those restaurants. And I remember when Marina Bay Sands, if you remember Marina Bay Sands, that there's a ship looking structure and there is a restaurant called Sky Park 57. I went to that restaurant five times in four weeks. I knew the menu, I knew the manager, and you know, they give me the mobile phone so I can make a reservation. So with there, when you bring customers there, people address you by your name. So your customer will feel better. So you'll be off to a, a good start. And there's one restaurant in Singapore. It's called El Fore. It's in Singapore Land Tower. If I walk in, at least three people will greet me. Is that by Eric? name? <laughs> yeah, by name. And sometimes I haven't been there for a long time. They still remember me. And without saying anything, they will fetch me ice honey lemon because that's my usual drink to start off. That's how good they are. This is something that we have to do to develop that relationship. But of course, this particular restaurant, they are really good at their service. They can make exception for you right? because sometimes your customers may not eat certain things. Like for example, in Hong Kong, I've got a favorite sushi restaurant. I brought my Indian customer there. He's a vegetarian. So I called the chef and said, can you make a vegetarian sushi? No problem. Done. I went there. My friend was very happy to have a vegetarian sushi. So I suppose since we are on the topic of food, I have to ask you before I go on, what's the top places to go to eat in Shanghai and also in Hong Kong? In Hong Kong, I go to the Rose Goose restaurant, Yonggei. I also have a nice restaurant that I go near Wan Chai because I usually stay at the Grand Hyatt then just near where I live. Shanghai, I haven't been there for a while now. The one store that I go is Xiaoyang Shenzhen and now it's a franchise. But I'm not sure whether it's still there. Now we've talked about all the different places that you've been. You have also been to this place called Ulaanbaatar in Mongolia. What was yeah. it like? Oh, it's amazing because at that time, there was a mining boom. I think I was with City then. There was a mining conference, so I decided that I should go there and find out about the place. So I had a one day of conference. Then after that, I went for photo shoot in the countryside, staying in this little hut. I was also thinking of investing in the real estate there in Ulaanbaatar. So I thought it must be very cheap, right? Because Mongolia is so huge, population is so little. But around Ulaanbaatar, it's not so cheap because everybody wants to stay there. I said, why, why don't you build something further out? But when you build something further out, who is going to bring you the water and electricity? So end up, everybody crowd around this small little place. So I thought this is also a lesson learned. I said, oh, if you build something, the infrastructure must come with it as well. Unlike Singapore, you got water everywhere in Singapore, not, not in places like Mongolia. You then went from city to UBS. Mm. And I noticed again, it was because an ex-colleague asked whether you were keen to move to city. 
Why is it that all these people seem to constantly refer jobs to you from other banks? I mean, what do you do to cultivate these relationships? I think it's the social capital. Number one is sometimes don't try to win a battle and lose a war, right? For small transaction, you know, share the credit, share the revenue. Then you build relationship over the long run. I mean, if you make a bit more, but you need to fight and strain the relationship, then nobody's going to call you because they know that if you join the bank that they are in, they're going to fight with you. Therefore, me, I'm an easier person to work with. And also, if there's something good, there's some good deal, I let them know. I'm lucky also that people like to work with me. And when there's a good opportunity, they think of me first. You called City your dream job. Mm. Was it your dream job? Yeah, it was like a family. You know, some people say that your job is not your family, but in City, it is like a family. Very close to people. And I remember one of the global boss came from London or New York and run the business for about two years. So suddenly from a DBS bank, stand chart, more local culture than to international. So there were drinks and drinking with big bosses until 2, 3 a.m. going to party. And he was talking about one book by Michael Gladwell at that time. Tipping Point is very first book. And he said that this is a good book. So I said, okay, good book then. Yeah, I'm interested. Next day when I went to office, you know, after drinking until 2, 3 a.m., I went to office like 7.30, 8 o'clock. In the morning, tipping point, that book was on my table. How did my boss, who's the global head, can wake up so early and get this book? How did he get this book? So I was very impressed. I'm like four levels below him. Why he bothered to do that? So that made me feel I'm a part of the community. And was that just the culture for everyone? No matter how low you were, they will always help you? I think, yeah, generally it's the culture. But with me, because I show them around the local food, I go to their house to show them how to use Mac. Because I was the first adopter of Mac. So anybody who wants to use Mac, I'm their private tutor. So I get to meet a lot of the big bosses, family as well. I found an interesting LinkedIn post that you wrote six months ago. Mm. And you actually said at the time, except for leaving city after eight years mm. just to go to UBS in most decisions I made I was happier when I took the actions as opposed to doing nothing remaining status quo mm-hmm. so does that mean you were unhappy to leave city for UBS so at the first six months was very tough at UBS because it's more intense the investment banking is more intense right half my career in city was in global markets that's more family Second half, I was in the investment bank. Then now this is true, pure investment bank. And the people around me, most of them come from privileged family. They come from good schools and they know what to do. And the good bankers, within two phone calls, they can reach anybody in that country if they are the banker for that country. I felt a little bit out of place. But fortunately, after six months, I got used to it. It reminds me of a story you often tell about how you realize that your hawker story was something that you could embrace and was very, very unique and people were actually very interested. Mm. I've noticed lots of people who are in the rich, rich, the top echelon. Mm. A lot of them are actually genuinely very interested and want to help. But Mm. there are also some people who are, I would say a little bit more, you can feel as though they look down upon you, but they don't actually say it out loud. Mm -hmm. You can't pinpoint exactly. Did you ever sort of think, oh, actually, I don't want to say this story because I know these specific people 
would look down and treat me differently and they'll probably talk about me behind my back as well or do you just go I'm going to embrace this because this is who I am and I can see the value of it over time I don't think the people look down on me there's nothing to look I'm far far below them in terms of wealth and network people look down on you when they are being looked down upon or they feel that you are a bit of a threat then they look down on you so for me I'm no no threat Right. They probably can sense. They may not know my father was a hawker, but from the way I talk, the way I spend, they can tell maybe I'm not really in the same league as them, although I was MD. It was a friend. His name is Chuck. He's Singaporean based in Hong Kong. So I got to know him maybe the first two years in Hong Kong when I moved there. Then he was introducing me to his friends, Singaporeans, Hong Kong people and other friends. And then he would always say, you got to listen to Eric's story. I said, Eric, tell your story. I said, what story? Your hawker story. I said, what is there to talk about? Then he did that a few times. The first few times I refused to tell the story. I said, there's nothing to this. Because I, I live this type of life. There's nothing to read, right? Well, it's not interesting to me. I don't think people are interested. Then finally, one time I said that. And I feel people are generally interested. They are so intrigued. Then I incorporate that into my speeches in, I think, 2015. Yeah. You even brought a knife for one of your presentations. Yes. <laughs> Singapore Association in Hong Kong say that, Eric, do talk around hawkers. So I say, okay, what we can learn from hawkers for our career. Can you share a bit? Do you remember what you said in that presentation? Yeah. So I say number one is productivity. Hawker, right? The hawker store, where the knife is, where the cleaning cloth is, has got a fixed position. That means when you close your eyes, your hand can still reach the cutleries, the chopping board. And then for me, that's how I set up my working desk in the office as well. When I close my eyes, I can reach out to my stapler. So that means you don't need to think. You must be super efficient and productive because the margin is low. If you work too slow, you're not going to make a living. So that is one. And you see hawkers, they wear almost the same thing to work. My father wore a white t-shirt for 30 years, same brand. And he would buy like half a dozen of those. So I said, okay, maybe I can learn from him. And also some service. Yeah, I took treat customer well. There was once I decided to cook for myself. I first helped my father at around, you know, age of 10 to 12. I was just cleaning the tables then slowly progressing to cut the ingredients, slicing the prawns and chili. Then finally, I can cook for myself. So cooking for myself means I need to go into the cooking station. But at the time, I was also washing the bowls. So the way when we wash our bowls is not under running tap. We have a three-pail system. The first pail is with the soap solution. That's where we soak the dirty bowls. Second pail of water is clean water. The third pail is clean water. So after washing up, we'll use a sponge, clean the top and the bottom of the bowl, and then take the whole chunk and dunk it into the second pail, then the third pail. This is how we wash. It's clean. But after you wash 30 to 40 bowls, the second pail of water start turning milky. And... So you're not so confident of your own washing. So when I was cooking for myself, I turned around. There was a washing tap at the cooking station. I turned around and washed the bowl again. Because sometimes you go to a restaurant, do you ever find that small little bit of noodle on the clean bowl that they serve you? Yes. So I didn't want that. 
my father caught me washing and he told me sternly but softly. He said, don't ever do that. It's very ugly if the customer sees it. If the bowl is clean enough for the customers, it's clean enough for you. So either I wash the bowl very thoroughly until I have confidence or I just accept what it is. I need to treat the customer and myself the same. So when I went to banking, whatever products I sell, I make sure it's the product that I would buy if I were in the same situation as the customer. Speaking of Hawker Life, running Hawker Store reminds me of, and you've mentioned him before, Hawker Chan, who Mm. I actually also interviewed on this podcast as well. But you obviously will have far greater understanding of what it was like for him to get to that point. Were you surprised when you first heard that he won the Michelin star? Do you think that was ever possible? And what was that just meeting him? No, I I never heard of him before because I was in Hong Kong when he was given that award. So when I heard he got the award, I flew back from Hong Kong to Singapore to go and see him and try to interview him. I went there during lunchtime thinking I can have lunch, but the queue was super long. And I see Hawker Chan is not very tall. It's maybe like... 1.55, 1.55, yeah. And he was taking order. I said, a Michelin chef chopping chicken away and taking order. How can it be? Because the Michelin chef that we thought of, the one just supervising, right? So I said, can I come and interview you? He said, you wait, wait, wait. So I waited for about three hours until like three, four o'clock when he finally sold out. Then he took a break. Then I interviewed him. So I said, hey, you wear a uniform. You're just selling your soy sauce chicken noodle for $2.50 Singapore dollars. And you put on a uniform, he said, yes, he has six of this uniform and one of his uniform has a logo on it. His shop logo. He said that one is for special occasion. And it was also the one he wore to collect the Michelin star in Sentosa. He told me at the time he had no idea what the Michelin was and why everyone made a big deal. Yeah, and he took MRT to go to that Michelin event. And I think he was happy, but I think he still continued to sell at the same price. He said that that's about the price for the Chinatown market. So I thought he has a good integrity. He didn't took advantage of that to raise price. He continued to work hard and he worked, I think, 100 hours a week. He got a rest day, but on the rest day, he's not resting. The shop is closed, but he's there preparing the week long of sauces and ingredients. And he starts very early to come and make the chicken early in the morning. Mm. Yeah. What was most touching for me was her saying that without his wife, who also works with him, there will be no Hokkachan. Yeah. You know, you usually need a partner. One person cannot do a job. Yeah. Like for me, I'm fortunate to have people around me to help me do my LinkedIn live, to shoot video. You know, I got teaching assistant and with book, right? I got co-author. So usually you need one partner or two to help you. So just before we go to all the exciting stuff, let's touch on the fact that while at UBS, you actually became the MD. Mm. And you said that MD positions are generally not advertised. Mm. So how did you come to be aware of it? And what was the process like? You said nine rounds of interviews, which is yeah. intense. So Paul, my colleague from City, joined UBS. Then he called me. So I went for nine rounds. It was MD position. So many departments have to interview you because I'll be working with various departments. And if one person say no, then they cannot hire you. I was also very lucky because one of the big bosses in UBS, I also know him through City. So he also joined. So he put in a good word for me. 
they also check around your market, your reputation, because banking is quite a small circle of people at that level. So I guess when they check around, my reputation is not bad and they decided to hire me. What does it mean to be the MD of UBS? It's just a nice title, you know. For me, when I was there, it's nothing. I still have to put in the hours, the work, just that we get to fly business class and I get to stay at five-star hotel. But sometimes, you know, I reach the hotel at 11 p.m. And because I reach late, I don't know, they run out of room, so they'll give me a two-room suite, two-bedroom with a kitchen. I only sleep one side of the bed for seven hours. Next day, 7 a.m., I'm already checked out to have a breakfast meeting. So sometimes you are given all these luxury things. You may not have the time or the mood to enjoy. Would you consider yourself to have been a successful MD? I think so. Brought in enough deals. And also I trained a lot of young people. Whether I'm successful or not, I test it based on how people treat me after I leave. I still got a lot of juniors still coming to me. I left five years ago. So yeah. People still coming to me. So I'm very grateful. That means I must have done something right for people to want to be seen with me, stick around with me, doing podcasts, doing LinkedIn Live with me. And whenever I teach in the university, they volunteer their time. And that was the end of episode 112, part one. The show notes and transcript can be found at so this com forward slash 112. If you haven't done so already, please do leave a review for this podcast. It really helps this podcast to grow and reach other people and also makes me feel like less of a crazy person talking to a wall. And please do stick around, check back this Wednesday because part two with Eric Singh will be released. And we start off by learning why Eric decided when he was doing so well as managing director at UBS that he was going to leave his job. His thoughts on how he built his 2.5 million followers on LinkedIn, the opportunities that has brought him, the importance of having a second career, personal branding, writing a book, and the difference between publishing and marketing in both English and specifically in China. Also, we will have a special bonus episode where all the questions that you ask for us, questions from the audience, will also be released. So do stick around because it would be great. And I will see you this Wednesday. <laughs>